Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, November 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what federal largesse looks like from a state budget official's perspective. Plus, how DOD and the Small Business Administration encourage investment in critical technologies. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, women in some racial minority groups are fairly well represented in government compared to the nationwide workforce, but certain groups are still behind. Reports from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission show three specific groups that are falling behind. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details from EEOC social scientists Olisi Sawatu and Karen Brummond. You hear Sawatu first. Where we start seeing issues is when we start talking about um, representation and leadership, primarily in pay. American Indian and Alaska Native women, their participation rate in the federal sector is 0.8% compared to 0.3% in the CLF. African-American women, their representation in the federal sector is 11.7% compared to 6.6% in the CLF. So we see they're doing really well in that regard. The federal sector is doing really well in that regard. However, when it comes to leadership, this is where we start seeing that they are underrepresented as um, executives, managers, and supervisors compared to representation, I should say, in the federal sector. And we also see where American Indian and Alaska Native women they're earning 68% on a dollar compared to the government-wide average. Um, African-American women are earning 88 cents on a dollar um, compared to the government-wide average. And Karen, I know that your report focused specifically on Hispanic and Latina women in the federal workforce. So tell me, were there similarities or differences to these other two reports in your research? For Hispanic women and Latinas, there are some different findings than what was found for American Indian and Alaska Native women and for Black and African American women. Hispanic women and Latinas are underrepresented in the federal workforce. While they made up 6.2% of the civilian labor force nationwide, they only accounted for 4.5% of federal employees. They also resigned from the federal workforce at a rate almost twice the average for all employees government-wide. About 4.5% of Hispanic women and Latinas resigned in FY 2020 compared to 2.3% of all employees. Another difference um, between the reports was that Hispanic and Latina women uh, held first-line supervisory positions in the federal agencies at a higher rate than their participation in the federal workforce. But like American Indian and Alaska Native women and Black and African American women, they were underrepresented in the higher leadership positions. They were underrepresented as managers and executives. Similar to the other groups, uh, they were paid less than the government-wide average. Their uh, pay was 82 cents on the dollar compared to the average federal employee. And just quickly for clarification here, when you talk about the civilian labor force or CLF for short, 
Is that a measure of the private sector workforce? Does it include state and local governments? Or what is really the comparison here? It includes all employees in the United States, um, civilian um, employees in the United States, everyone, including federal, state, all employees. Thank you. And you both spoke about disparities in leadership positions and the pay gaps that exist for these groups. But generally for the government, the pay system doesn't leave a lot of room for variability. So to me, it's a little bit surprising that there is still a pay gap here. Is that just based on the positions that these employees hold or where does that pay gap come from? We do have a lot of mechanisms in place in the federal sector to sort of prevent these kinds of things of occurring. In fact, federal employees tend to, on average, earn more than what they would earn in the CLF. The pay gaps are actually smaller um, in the federal sector compared to the CLF, at least for most most, um, populations. Um, However, within the federal government, we do still find um, persistent disparities across the groups with respect to pay. Currently, we don't have an explanation for why, why that's the case. We see that the pay gaps are there now. You know, we acknowledge that as an emerging issue, and then it becomes a question of why is that there and what to do about it. And Karen, what about you? Was there anything in your report specifically that you want to highlight in terms of the pay gaps here? For Hispanic women and Latinas, we do have specific numbers on that. Among Hispanic and Latina women um, nationwide, they were paid 72 cents on the dollar. Um, However, in the federal government, Hispanic and Latina women were making 82 cents on the dollar compared to employees government wide. We do see a substantial gap, but, um, you know, we need to dig further if we want to find out why it's different in the federal government. Previous research, such as that done by the Government Accountability Office, has found that differences in occupation tend to explain a lot of that, but then getting to the root cause of those differences in occupation takes a lot to go into. And these, as Mike said, are really broad reports, just identifying where where the statistics are right now, getting the baseline And then future research would have to be done to identify the causes of these, which will vary group to group, and they may vary organization to organization. Where did the basis of these reports come from, or why did your team decide to drill down on these specific areas? How does this fit into the broader work that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission does? These reports were meant to be drill downs as an opportunity to sort of identify Things that we saw in the annual report that we thought may be happening, as we drill down, now we can confirm that these things are happening. We've identified an emerging issue. And what happens is that future opportunities now may bring us in a direction of explaining why these things are happening. Within these current three reports, we've talked about disparities in leadership, disparities in pay. Aside from those, were there any other findings that really stood out to you when you were doing this research? In the Hispanic Women and Latinas report, one thing that wasn't planning on analyzing in the report was the difference between resignations and retirements. The original plan was just to look at voluntary separations, that is, resignations and retirements combined. When I saw that Hispanic Women and Latinas had a high rate of voluntary separations, it did lead me to want to dig a little further. 
And that led to the finding that um, resignations were the driving force of Hispanic um, women and Latinas leaving the federal government. Among the African-American employees, African-American women, I should say, um, we did observe differences in voluntary separations compared to the government-wide average. But I think the more important factors were those pay gaps and also the drop-off that occurs as we move from, at least among American Indian and Alaska Native, as well as the African-American women, as we move from supervisors and managers to executives. The gaps become larger between their representation in leadership and their representation in the workforce as we move up that executive ladder. So that's going to be one of those things that we have to look out for. EEOC social scientists Olisi Sawatu and Karen Brummond. Speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how DOD and the Small Business Administration encourage investment in critical technologies. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard so I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.